Good morning, everyone. We'll open up with a word of prayer before we get started. Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you for everyone who is able to make it out here this morning to be in your house, to study your word together. Open up our hearts and our minds to your word that we may know what your word is trying to say to us so we could apply it to our hearts and our lives and our minds. And may it go just beyond intellectual learning and intellectual knowledge that this knowledge would be transformed into something spiritually fruitful and spiritually productive in our hearts and our lives, that it changes us from the inside out in such a noticeable way that people uh, in our lives will see a change. We ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, first of all, I just kind of want to uh, um, talk to you about a few things that I discovered and found out in my studies as I was uh, studying this. In the Hebrew month of Chesvan, uh, during September-October, uh, that is the month in Judaism that's associated with water, with uh, kind of like the rainy season. And so during this time, Jews all over the world in every synagogue will read about the account of Noah. So right about now, uh, synagogues all over the world, they're studying what we're studying, which is kind of neat. Now there's some um, legends that I discovered. Uh, it, it says, uh, according to Genesis uh, 5.29, where it talks about uh, Noah, this one will comfort us in our work from the pain of our hands because the ground which Adonai cursed. It was believed by the Jewish rabbis and sages who wrote the Talmud, which is the compendium of Jewish knowledge, uh, says that up until that time there was no really um, farming tools that everybody worked the ground with their hands. And Noah invented farming tools such as hoes and rakes and shovels and, and things like that. So, you know, whether that's true or not, we don't know. But they link that to Noah, which Noah means comfort. Noah will comfort us. And there was a prophecy in um, extra-biblical literature like Jubilees and Jasher that uh, Noah was going to reverse, to some extent, the curse that was placed upon the ground. So the curse that was placed upon the ground as thorns and thistles came up. And uh, the legend is, is that you never knew what was going to come up. Whatever you planted, the, 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 the thorns would overtake and choke out whatever you planted. And so you could never depend on that. But the curse was lessened after Noah was born. And things started coming up more regularly and more predictably. And Noah invented uh, farming tools. So that's just kind of a little interesting tidbit I thought I'd throw out there. Um, also... Um, according to legend, we know that Noah, God instructed Noah with the command to gather in all the animals. And sometimes we wonder, well, what were the women folk doing? According to legends of the Bible, Noah's wife and uh, Noah's son's wives gathered all of the seeds. Because, you know, after the flood, you're going to have to replant stuff. You just can't really depend on the world to just kind of come back to life and just kind of be the way it used to. So according to the legends, Noah's wife and all the women collected seeds, which is a, a form of living things, uh, potentially living things, and while Noah and his sons gathered in all the animals. So that was uh, kind of an interesting legend that I run across in my studies. Also, uh, there's a, a particular story that's told of a mother lion, a lioness, bringing her, her male and female cubs to Noah. And she was about ready to go on the ark with her son and daughter, the two cubs. 
when the Cubs turned around and swatted her and batted her, and she kind of cowered and walked back down the ramp. Because God said, no, just two by two. Sorry, Mama, you can't go with us. And the Cubs kind of innately knew this and scolded their mother. And we, we, you know, just assumed that all the animals that didn't go on the ark, that, uh, you know, they just perished. But God had a job for them. According to Legends of the Bible, um, or the book of Jasher, rather, uh, it's said that after Noah and his family were on the ark, safely sealed inside by God, that all the other animals surrounded the ark and guarded the animals or guarded the ark from the people trying to get in. Because if you can imagine the rain started coming down, they would have they would have stormed the ark and tried to break the door down. And with that force of that many people, you know, they might have been able to do that. So according to the book of Jasher, the, the wild animals surrounded the ark and kept the people away so that they wouldn't be able to break into the ark. So just a little bit of interesting knowledge. Like I said, we, you know, it's, it's not canon, so I'm not saying that we have to believe this or you know, that it's gospel truth, but it kind of fits with the narrative and it kind of helps bring a little bit more understanding to the canonical scriptures. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 9 where I specifically want to talk about the Noadic Covenant. So if time allows, we're going to just delve into the Noadic Covenant now, we know that there's uh, at least seven covenants throughout scriptures, one with Adam, one regarding uh, the garden itself, the Edenic covenant, the Noadic covenant, uh, there's the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and so on. So let's, um, I wrote a paper about the Noadic covenant, so I'm going to be reading mostly from that today. It says, a flood came in Noah's time, and only eight human souls were saved. Eight is the number, meaning a new beginning. So there's seven days in the week, right? So eight begins a new week, day number eight. So eight symbolizes new beginnings, a fresh start. And from those eight people, we today have over six billion people in the world. And uh, that's actually an old number. We're actually close to eight billion people in the world right now. We have a rainbow as God's covenantal sign never to destroy or cleanse the earth by water. The rainbow made of water and light from the sun, a hint that next time the earth will be purged by fire. So you've heard of fire and ice. It's interesting that kind of a rainbow is made of fire and ice, so to speak. It's made from the water droplets and the sun coming through the water droplets, creating a prism effect, separating the different colors that we know. And so it kind of alludes to that even though God promised to never the flood the world again, that next time it will be cleansed by fire, which Peter confirms in 2 Peter 3, 9 through 14, where he says that the elements will melt with a fervent heat before the creation, uh, recreation of the new heaven and the new earth. So in God's law, according to Leviticus chapter 13, everything must be cleansed by water at least twice. The attempt is made to cleanse things twice with water, and if it doesn't work two times, the third time, the cleansing has to be done through fire. And so God, he doesn't go against the, own law, the, the laws he created. He obeys the laws he created as an example to us to keep his laws. So we have already discussed earlier on in this class that there is an allusion to a pre-edemic flood because when God recreated the heavens and the earth in uh, Genesis 1.1, it says the earth was already there. But it was form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Spirit of God moved over the waters. So there was already a cataclysm that happened 
before the recreation of the earth that we know now. So that's called the pre-Adamic flood. Then we have the Noatic flood, and we know that someday uh, that the world is going to crash and burn literally, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat according to 2 Peter chapter 3. So, um, so then Adonai cleansed the world by fire. It will be like a slash and burn agricultural project to renew the earth back to the time of Eden. So we think of this fire destroying the earth as bad, something bad. But if you go into foreign countries, they have what's called a slash and burn agriculture. Before the new farming season, they will burn their fields. And we do the same thing here in Canada in the springtime. We'll burn our fields to make the grass greener because that the, the, the ashes from what is burned creates nutrients for the soil and things come up more lively and vibrant. So imagine the same thing happening when the world is purged by fire. Things are going to come back more lush than ever before. I remember in the 80s, the, the, the volcanic eruption of Mount St. Helens. I mean, the ash was so thick, it was like snow. And uh, people are like, oh, I can't imagine this place ever coming back from that. But if you go to Mount St. Helens now, it's thriving with life. The trees are back. The foliage is back. It's green and lush, and animals are there like never before. So uh, we see that it's going to be a good thing. So in Revelation 21, 1, it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Uh, okay. So... When, when the new heaven and the new earth comes, I liken it unto the refurbishing of a car. You know, let's take an old classic car, for example, a vintage car, 57 Chevy, let's say. And uh, somebody finds an old hull of a 57 Chevy in the junkyard and they get this idea, I want to restore this. It's just a, 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 a rusted out hull. And so, you know, they just, uh, they go to work, they, they sand it down, they repaint it, they find all the necessary parts from junkyards across where they live, and sometimes they have to order it online. And after years of hard work, they restore this 57 Chevy back to, you know, brand new. And maybe even a little bit better because they added some modern things to it. Uh, that's going to be kind of like the new, the, the, the new heaven and new earth. This earth is going to be re refurbished, reborn, just like an old 57 Chevy, and it's going to be uh, brought even better than it was before. Okay, so let's get into Genesis chapter 9. Let's start with verses 1 through 4. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. The fear and terror of you will be on every wild animal and on every flying creature of the sky. With everything that crawls on the ground and with all the flesh of the sea, uh, into your hands they are given. Every crawling thing that is alive will be food for you, uh, as are the green plants. I have now given you everything. Only flesh with its life, that is the blood, still in it, you must not eat. Uh, so it says in verse 5, I'll go ahead and read that. Surely your lifeblood I will, will I avenge. From every animal and from every person I will avenge it. Uh, for every person's brother will I avenge that person's life. So there's the prohibition against murder right there. So God is just reiterating all these commandments that Adam and all the way up to Noah knew before. So really God's not saying anything new besides that he's adding meat to the diet. And a lot of people will argue that, oh, Noah could eat anything. And that's the way it appears in the English. But if you remember... From Adam to Noah, they already had a concept of clean and unclean animals. 
animals that were acceptable for ritual sacrifice, animals that were not. And so I believe that Noah and his sons kind of assumed and already knew that, okay, there's animals that's going to be okay to eat now because we were vegetarian up to this point. And there's going to be animals that are not okay to eat. And so following the sacrificial system, it just kind of makes sense that if these animals are acceptable to God for sacrifice and we're made in his image, then that must mean we can eat those. So I think it's safe to assume that um, that Noah and his sons, uh, when they ate meat, that uh, you know they ate clean animals. Uh, okay, this is what I have in my notes. Here we... Here we see man is not vegetarians anymore, and that the kosher slaughtering and consumption of meat is now allowed by God. Yet another allusion to the fact that the Torah is eternal, or God's laws is eternal, as always has been. Even on the ark, they were vegetarians, according to Genesis 6.21. So now we're going to pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 9, and we're going to be reading to verse 17 and go through that. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now I, behold, I am about to establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you, including the flying creatures, the livestock, and every wild animal that is with you, of all that is coming out of the ark, every animal of the earth. I will confirm my covenant with you. Never again will all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again will there be a flood to ruin the land. Then God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for future generations. My rainbow do I place in the cloud, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the land. Whenever I bring clouds over the land and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Never again. See, he's repeating it twice. So when God says something twice, we can count on it once. We can take it to the bank twice, right? Never again will, will the waters become a flood to destroy all flesh. So there's a little disclaimer here that God is saying, I'm not saying I'm not going to flood anymore. There's going to be floods here and there. But I promise I'll never flood the entire world. That's the difference. Verse 16, when the rainbow is in the cloud, I will look at it to remember the perpetual. Perpetual means ongoing forever. So in other words, the Noahic covenant has never come to an end. It will never come to an end. None of God's covenants come to an end because each covenant builds upon the other. A lot of times, the next covenant that comes along will reiterate the, the conditions of the covenant before and add to it. Uh, when the rainbow is in the cloud, I will look at it to remember the perpetual covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the land. Then God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have confirmed between me and all flesh that is in the land. Okay, so let's dig into those verses. So this, uh, this tells us, let's get my notes arranged here. This tells us that the Noahic covenant was not only made with Jews, but with all mankind, because really there was no such thing as Jews at that point. Even though Noah and his son Shem and the descendants of Shem would eventually become the Hebrew and Jewish people, this Noahic covenant was made for all mankind because everybody was included in it. 
Noah's sons, Ham, which is all the African peoples, uh, Shem, which is all the Arab and Jewish peoples, and Japheth, which is all the Caucasian and Asian peoples of the world. So that kind of covers the bases of everybody and everybody in between because we know that the three sons mingled with each other and produced various different uh, um, people groups. So this tells us that the Noahic covenant was not only made with the Jews, but with all mankind. Next time, God will not cleanse the earth by a flood, but by fire, as we already read in 2 Peter 3, 9-14. Seeing as how Noah and his family were starting over from just eight people sprang almost eight billion people today. The Noahic covenant and the Edenic covenant have some similarities, which I've written on the board. So notice that God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And notice that word replenish. If this was the first creation, God would have said, plenish the earth, not replenish. You, the only time you replenish is when something has been made null and void before. So that kind of gives a little bit more credence to the pre-edemic flood that we were mentioning. Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Well, we see the flood happened and destroyed the earth again. And so those same words are said to Noah and his family in uh, Genesis 9, 1 and 7. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So in the Edenic covenant, we also have another stipulation of the covenant. It says, subdue, he's talking to Adam and Eve, subdue and have dominion and other managership, rulership, governorship over the earth and its creatures, Genesis 1.28. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, they really yeah, there there are some black Jews, most definitely. The Ethiopian, there's a tribe in Ethiopia, the Limba tribe, who is genetically linked to the to the tribe of Levi. They're the priestly clan. Uh, also, as I've said before, I've worked extensively with the Ibu people of Nigeria, who come from the lost tribe of Gad. So there are uh, um, African tribes that are linked to Israel. So that is correct. So, um, so the Edenic covenant, subdue and have dominion over the creatures of the earth, Genesis 1.28. So we go to Genesis 9.2, and it basically says the same thing. Uh, the animal kingdom is delivered into man's hands. So they're given that responsibility. Now, the difference between the Edenic covenant and the Noahic covenant is that meat was added to the diet. So in the Edenic covenant, it says man was vegetarian according to Genesis 1.29 and 30 and Genesis 2.16. But that was changed in the Noahic covenant, uh, in Gen what we just read in Genesis 9, 3 through 6. And I think um, there is compelling arguments, even though many people say, oh, they could eat whatever they want, and God changed it later. No, God's consistent. God doesn't change his mind back and forth and contradict himself. So I believe because there was that knowledge of clean and unclean animals and their roles and functions in the world, that when he said you could eat meat now, that it was kind of all assumed uh, that it was only the, uh, the clean animals that could be consumed as food. Uh, so in drawing up a new covenant, it was fairly typical to reiterate some of the stipulations in the previous covenant in order to remind the parties of the foundation the recent covenant is building upon. Uh, okay. 
So the difference in the Noahic covenant as compared to the Edenic covenant, beginning in verses 4 through 6, which is, if you're going to eat meat, the blood must be drained from it. Because the blood was sacred. The blood uh, represents life. It represents the life force. And so that's, you know, because the blood and the fat were offered to God on the altar, that was God's portion of the sacrifice, men were exempt from consuming it. And not only that, God knew about, about blood-borne pathogens before man discovered such a thing. Because that's one of the quickest ways to spread any kind of disease is through blood or through you know, bodily fluids. God knew this, so he said, don't eat the blood. Now we see later that the pagans, uh, the rebellious sons of Noah, uh, Ham and Japheth, uh, they got into worshiping other gods, and part of their sacrificial ritual was actually drinking blood. So God had to make that prohibition because he knew that eventually these people would fall and drift far away from God, that they would start doing these things that he doesn't want them to do. So um, verses 4 and 6, if you're going to eat meat, the blood must be drained from it, further implying only clean animals are to be considered as an acceptable food source. For the commandments are repeated in the Mosaic Covenant, which is the law, uh, the Torah, when dealing with the dietary laws. It's also, uh, it also prohibits, by implication, killing animals for sport or trophy, but only for food. So, you know, in verses um, 5 through 6, it talks about, you know, man shedding man's blood and man shedding animal's blood and animal shedding man's blood. So that if basically if an animal attacks you, that animal is no longer trustworthy. It's not afraid of man. You must kill it before it kills somebody else. And then, you know, an animal like that, you don't eat the meat of that carcass. Uh, but, you know, if uh, a man just kills an animal just for the heck of it, then God is going to uh, um, require judgment of that person because if he didn't kill it for food, he killed it out of cruelty, killed it for trophy, or killed it for sport, which is prohibited. So basically, if you're going to kill an animal, there's nothing wrong with hunting at all. But if you're going to kill an animal, use it. Eat the meat. And we see that the, the native First Nations people are great at this because they just not only eat the meat, they use the hide, they use the antlers, they use the hooves, they use the, 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 the sinews, they use the internal organs. They're, there's different purposes. Some, you know, some parts of the animal you can make bowstrings out of, other parts of the animal you can make rattles out of, you can make hilts for knives, uh, or you can make farming imp implement tools from parts of the animal like the shoulder bone or the what. So utilize the animal is the point here. And again, uh, we also see that uh, murder is prohibited in these verses as well. So this causes us to think of the episode between uh, Cain and the murder of his brother Abel. That happened earlier. So verse 6 gives us the reason why murder is wrong, because we are made in God's image. Verse 5 implies or hints that at, that hints at the death penalty if one murders a fellow man. So um, in the eight covenants of the Bible... Uh, by Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he says capital punishment became a part of the human economy for the first time, verses 5 and 6. When Cain killed Abel, Cain was not executed because capital punishment had not been instituted. The provision for capital punishment came with the Noahic Covenant, and all murders, murderers were to be executed. So that's kind of interesting. So, as to emphasize the importance and the sacredness of life, the command in verse 1 is repeated in verse 7. 
So Lucifer, Satan, had dominion over the earth prior to the fall. So we know that when Satan was kicked out of heaven, he was cast down to earth. And even Yeshua, Jesus said in the Gospels, I was there because I saw Satan fall like lightning. Right? So when he was cast out of heaven, he was cast down to earth. So Lu Lucifer kind of took up management and ownership of the earth. And Paul even says he is the prince and the power of the air. He is the god of this fallen world. We know that ultimately this is God's world. This is my father's world, right? As the hymn says. But he says, I own the cattle of a thousand hills. This is all mine anyway. And so one of Jesus' missions, when Jesus came in the flesh, he started taking back territory that Satan had confiscated and claimed was his. Because everywhere Jesus went, he cast out demons because the demons were there ruling and managing. He cast them out of people. He cast them out of the area. And every place that Jesus went, he put his foot down and basically put his flag saying, nope, this is mine too. Nope, you don't have this. This is mine too. Nope, this is mine. And in Deuteronomy, God says, okay, fine, Satan. If you want to throw a little pity party, you can have the 70 nations. But know this, I'm going to reclaim them back in the future. I'm going to bring all man into myself. But right now you can deal with them. I'm going to keep one nation for myself, and that's going to be Israel. And through Israel, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through Israel, I'm going to reclaim everything that, that, that you think is yours. And as I've said earlier in sermons and lessons, the Mount of Transfiguration was a major, uh, a major um, uh, battle in this spiritual war. Because on that mountain, Mount Hermon, is said to be the very mountain that all the angels that fell were cast down to. And we see that in pagan religions and all these religions throughout the world that every uh, a pagan nation has a mountain that's sacred to them where they claim that their god lives or their god comes from. So we even know we're familiar with Greek mythology through school where Mount Olympus was the meeting place of the Greek and Roman pantheon. Well, no different that Mount Hermon was the mountain where the, the 200 fallen angels, according to Jasher and Jubilees, it was 200 angels that rebelled against God and fell to earth and started becoming false gods. And so Mount Hermon was their Mount Olympus. And at the bottom of Mount Hermon is a cave. And in Israel today, it's called Panim, the cave of Panim. This is dedicated to the God of Pan. Who was Pan? Pan was a goat demon. He was half man, half goat. And the word pan is where we get the word panic. He was the god of fear. And so this cave became a place where human sacrifice was made and they were cast into this cave. And the Jewish people of Israel during Jesus' time believed that the cave of Panim was the entrance to hell. It was the entrance to the netherworld. So two amazing things happened at Mount Hermon. That was the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was transformed and transfigured, where Moses uh, and Elijah came down to meet with him during the Feast of Tabernacles. And Peter and James and John was there and witnessed the whole thing. It says, Jesus' countenance changed and was transformed, that his face shone like the sun. So the fallen angels are called shining ones. And so Jesus, uh, and, and the angels are also called B'nai Ha Elohim, the sons of God. So when Jesus was transfigured, he was basically saying, huh, you think you're the sons of God? I am the son of God. You think you're shining ones? I am the shining one, for I am the light of the world. And so after they came down from the mountain, he told uh, Peter and James and John, don't tell this story to anyone until after I'm gone. But when he got down to the mountain, 
What did he say? He said, it's upon this rock I will build my church. And the Catholics say, oh, well, that's Peter because Peter's name was Rock. No, they just come out, they just come down from the rock of Mount Hermon. He's saying, upon this rock, upon the gates of hell, because remember, the gates of hell, Panim, the cave of Panim, was right at the foot of Mount Hermon. And so Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It was kind of like Jesus was doing a mic drop, right? You know, at concerts, when these, you know, these guys think they've done a great job, they'll just drop the mic and walk away, and everybody's cheering. Yay! That's kind of what Jesus did. He dropped the mic. So that's, boy, that was a rabbit trail, but hopefully it was worth it. <laughs> Uh, like Herman. Yeah, like the name Herman. Uh, it's it's H-E-R, some people say M-A-N or M-O-N. Mount Hermon or Mount Herman. Uh, that was the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay. Uh, so in verse 11, God promises man and animal kind that despite occasional localized flooding, um, the world would not be destroyed by the flood again. All right. Verse 12 determines that the Noadic covenant is perpetual, meaning that it has not been done away with, but still remains in effect. Verse 11 says it's everlasting. The status of this covenant should not be in question. In verses 13 through 17, every time we see a rainbow, we are to remember God's faithfulness to the Noadic covenant. Now, Satan likes, as I just mentioned regarding Mount Hermon, Satan likes to try to claim territory that's God's. And will always be God's. He may have temporary material ownership of it and corruption of it, but God's going to reclaim it back. Well, we see that everything God has, Satan has a counterfeit. Right? So, uh, God promised that he wouldn't flood the world again to destroy it, and the rainbow is that, is that covenant. So, Seven is a very holy and sacred number. It means completion. It means perfection. So we know that the rainbow has seven colors. Roy G. Biv. You know, red, orange, yellow, green, uh, blue, indigo, and violet. So Satan's like, well, I'm going to steal this. This is such a cool idea. I'm going to steal it for my own. So the LBGTQ community took that rainbow and said, nope, that's ours. That symbolizes us. It's our pride. But if you count the colors on their flag, there's only six colors, not seven. Six is the number of man. It's the number of incompletion, imperfection. So I think it's kind of interesting. So here Satan's trying to counterfeit what God already has. Okay. Uh, so after a rainstorm or localized flooding, it is not uncommon to see a double rainbow in the sky. So I, last year, it seems like I've seen more double rainbows than I have in most of my adult life. So perhaps God gives a double rainbow when people's anxiety is running high due to severe weather and thus double reassurance that God remembers and is faithful to keeping his unconditional covenant. So that covers the Noadic covenant. Now we're going to get in the rest of uh, Genesis chapter 9, beginning with verse 18 through 28. It says, Noah's sons who came out from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from these the whole earth dispersed. 
And a couple Sundays ago, I gave you a little chart uh, that I photocopied off that shows where Noah's sons went and how we know where they went in the world. It says that Noah was a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, got drunk, and was uncovered in his tent. Then Ham, Canaan's father, saw his father's private parts. That's really not what the Hebrew says. Says that he un. What does it say in the King James? The cover uncovered his nakedness, his father's nakedness, his father's nakedness. Yeah, in English and in our Western culture, we would say, "Oh, that just means it was his private parts." But his father's nakedness is actually a well-known Jewish Hebrew idiom, and we'll get into that in a minute. It means something else. Canaan's father saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. So Shem and Japheth took the cloak and laid it over both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered his father's nakedness or his father's private parts. But their faces were turned away, so they did not see their father's private parts. When Noah woke up from his wine and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed is Canaan. Cursed is Canaan. Interesting. Ham was not cursed, but Canaan was cursed. Now, we know that it was the Canaanite nations that were wiped out because they were occupying the promised land. We also learned that in Genesis 6 that it was mostly the Canaanites, Ham's descendants, who had uh, intimate relationships with these fallen angels and produced these giants, these Nephilim. So that's another reason they were cursed because they corrupted the human genome, the human DNA, in order to try to wipe out the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 to prevent the Messiah from coming to redeem mankind. He also said, Blessed be the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. Now Noah was 350 years after the flood, so Noah's days were 950 years, then he died. So he was 50 years shy of living an entire millennial day. Because a day to the Lord is a, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. And God said that in the day you eat of the, fr the fruit, you will die. So there was a thousand-year limit on man's life at that time. So according to the Talmud, which again is the compendium of Jewish knowledge, and in a commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, it says Satan went into partnership with Noah to plant the vineyard. Again, this is legend. I'm not saying this is literal or real, but there's a lesson to be learned from it, which I think is important. Uh, it says, according to the Talmud, Satan went into partnership with Noah to plant this vineyard. Satan sacrificed a sheep, a lion, a pig, a monkey, and saturated the vineyard with the blood of these animals. Because, number one, before drinking wine, one is quiet as a lamb. Number two, when drinking in moderation, one feels strong as a lion. Number three, when one drinks more than enough, one becomes as a pig wallowing in his own filth. Number four, when, in, when, uh, intoxic when one is intoxicated, one acts like a monkey, foolishly dancing around and uttering obscenities. So it kind of gives you the different stages of drunkenness. Like I said, this is just an object lesson. It's not a literal story, so don't take it literally. But it does explain drunkenness because, you know, People are quiet when they're socially drinking their wine. When they drink a little much, they kind of get bold, think that they could do anything, push anybody around, get a little, you know. And then when they're really drunk, you know, they, they 
they soil themselves, they vomit on themselves, they, can't, they don't have control over their bodily functions. And then when they really get plastered, they, they, you know, they dance around, put lampshades on their head, dance around on tables, and just act real foolish. Okay, so um, verses 22 through 26, what does um, all this uncovering nakedness mean? This, is, this could be understood as a Hebraic idiom that to uncover your father's nakedness is to have sexual relations with your father's wife. So it is believed by some Jewish scholars that Canaan had sexual relations with his grandmother. That while Noah was passed out drunk, he raped Noah's wife. Because in Leviticus 18.8, it says, The nakedness of thy father's wife shall not be uncovered. It is thy father's nakedness. It is only the marital husband's priority and uh, um, his right to see his wife unclothed. No one else is to see his wife's nakedness. That's why it's called his father's nakedness. That nakedness belongs to the father. And remember, it says in Genesis that the man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, they shall become one flesh. So if his wife is naked, then that means he's naked as well because they're one flesh. They're one and the same. So, you know, Noah may have passed out drunk, naked, true, but his father's nakedness, because of the, uh, the known Hebraic idiom and because of Leviticus 18.8, it is believed by some that uh, what happened is that Cain or Canaan uh, basically had sexual relations with his grandmother, Noah's wife. And that is why Noah cursed him, because this was an ungodly act. Ham's son Canaan, like Reuben, like the same thing Reuben did to Jacob. Now, what did Reuben do to Jacob? He had sex with Bilhah, his concubine. That was his father's nakedness. That was his father's right. That was, nobody else had any right to Bilhah but Jacob. But Reuben betrayed his father, betrayed his father's trust. And, did you, and if you notice in the scripture how hard Reuben tried afterwards to please his father Jacob. When they had to go down to Egypt to get grain, Reuben said, I'll take responsibility. You know, uh, so Reuben and Judah stood up for Benjamin, you know, said nothing's going to happen. If something happens, let the blame be upon us. So Reuben tried really hard and Reuben was going to save Jacob or uh, Joseph. When they threw him in the pit and they were going to sell him to the Midianites, um, Reuben went off to do some errand or something. He come back and he's like, wait a second. The well's empty. Where's Joseph? Oh, we sold him. And he's like, oh, man, dad's going to kill me. Because he was the eldest and he was, you know, he was responsible for his brothers. So we see that after this event, Reuben tried really hard to please Jacob. So we find this in Genesis 35, 22 and 49, 3, 4, 4. And like Absalom did to David's concubine. So when Absalom turned on his father, David, David had to flee and leave. And so Absalom, in front of all Israel, humiliated his father by having sex with his concubine. That's 2 Samuel 16.22. So this action in the Middle East was considered, number one, usurping your authority, basically claiming your right to be ruler, your right to be king, your right to rule the roost and run the family. And it was a slap in the face of the former patriarch whom they were disposing as the ruler of the family. So Canaan had his intentions on becoming the head of the household. 
And in a way, this eventually happened because Canaan produced Nimrod, which Nimrod was the first king of the world. But the true Hebraic rendering is not, is not that it is thy father's nakedness, but that it is your father's shame, meaning it is an embarrassment. So it could be just as the Torah plainly says, without reading between the lines, that Ham walked in and saw his father naked and made fun of him. So there is still that interpretation to it. But I believe, because of well-known Hebrew idioms, that it is more likely that that unsavory thing that I just mentioned is really what happened. Thy father's nakedness is also alluded to in Leviticus as a euphemism for one's wife. So Ham could have uh, seen his mother naked or his mother and father being intimate. Okay, Leviticus 20.11 says, And the man that lieth with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. So there's an extremely good argument here. An extremely good biblical argument for Canaan possibly having relations with his grandmother. Both of them shall surely be put to death. The blood shall be upon them. So for Leviticus 18, from which we uh, quoted, is all about sexual deviance that the Gentiles did and were destroyed for and that we should not imitate them. Leviticus 18 is not speaking of accidentally walking in on somebody, showering or undressing, but is speaking of a premeditated act, a devious plot. This according to the Stones Tanakh, which is a, a Jewish commentary. All right, so um, this is what Legends of the Bible says by Lewis Ginsburg. When Noah awoke from his wine and became sober, he pronounced a curse on Ham uh, in the person of his youngest son, Canaan. To, to Ham himself, he could do no harm, for God had uh, conferred a blessing upon Noah and his three sons as they departed the ark. Therefore, he put the curse upon his last-born son uh, of the son that prevented him from begetting a younger son uh, that the three had had. So Canaan, Ham's son, literally got the curse and not Ham himself because God had already blessed Shem, Ham, and Japheth when they left the ark, as we just said. Now, because the Torah states that the father cannot be punished for the sins of the father, that a son cannot be punished for the sins of the father, and vice versa, Deuteronomy 24, 16, it could be deduced that Canaan saw Noah naked and reported it to his father Ham, who in turn reported it to his brothers. Was Noah just mad because Ham and Canaan saw him naked? No, I also think that Noah was mad because he knew sexual deviance was a major factor in God destroying the earth with the flood. And if God promised not to destroy the earth again with the flood, Noah hated to think what God would use next in order to destroy the earth if it became that sinful again. So we see in verses 26 and 27, Shem and Japheth get blessed because they cover their father's nakedness. Um, so this is also from Lewis Ginsburg of Legends of the Bible. Though Shem and Japheth both showed themselves to be dutiful and differential, yet it was Shem who deservedly got the larger uh, meat of praise. He was the first to set about covering his father. Japheth joined him uh, after the good deed had begun. Therefore, the descendants of Shem received their special reward, the talit, the prayer shawl. The garment worn by them, uh, while the Japhethites only get the toga. 
So according to legends of the Bible, we know that Japheth eventually uh, produced the Roman and Greek people who wore togas. And that cloth that they covered their father's nakedness with symbolizes the toga, but for the Jewish people, it symbolizes the prayer shawl. A further distinction, according to Shem, was the mention of his name in connection with God's in the, in the blessing of Noah. The relation of Shem to Japheth was expressed in, the, in blessing their father, and the blessing their father pronounced upon them. God will grant a land of beauty to Japheth, and his sons will be proselytes or converts dwelling in the academies of Shem, which produced the Jewish people. The curse of Ham's descendants was that Shem would conquer and take over their land the land of Canaan, which the Canaanites were descendants of Ham and his son Canaan. And indeed, Shem conquered Canaan, and many Canaanites became their servants. So, uh, and it is said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth and shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So that basically takes care of Genesis chapter 9. Now, Genesis chapter 10, we still have some time, so we'll kind of go over this really quickly. Genesis chapter 10 is another one of these genealogical chapters. And last time we delved into genealogy, we found something very fascinating, that the names of the gene in the genealogy produces a prophetic sentence. There's a hidden meaning behind the names. So we have uh, Japheth, which means persuader. We have Gomer, which means completion. Magog, which means expansion. Medea, which means middle. Javan, which means clay. Tubal, which means worldly. Meshech, which means drawn out. And Tiras, which means desire of parents. We have Gomer, which means completion, Ashkenaz, which means a fire that is spread, uh, Riphath, which means enemies, Togarman, which means strong, and again, we got Javan, which means clay, Elishaha, which means God is Savior, Tarshish, which means hard, Kittim, which means uh, they that bruise, and Dodanim, which means a leader. So if you put these names in the genealogy all together, it says they are persuaders who completely expand from the, from the middle of clay. They are worldly, drawn out, uh, drawn out the desire of the founders. They are a fire that completely spreads to their strong enemies. On this, their clay, their territory, they bruise hard God, Savior, and leader. So this is a prophecy, a hidden prophecy within the genealogy that Japheth's family would eventually um, kill the Son of God. Because we know that the Romans and the Greeks were known for their uh, conquering of nations, conquering of peoples, their territory. You had Alexander the Great. You know, they spread all across Europe, right? And so we know it's the Romans and the Greeks that basically put Yeshua to death on the cross. It was the Romans that nailed him there, right? So that is a um, kind of a prophecy. Now, we also have some of the names dealing with Ham, Ham's genealogy. Ham means dark and swarthy, which Ham was black like the rest of the people. Cush means blackness. Mizarim means tribulations. 
And Mizarim is, is eventually is the son of Ham who becomes Egypt. Put means extension. Canaan means lowland. And uh, so we have Cush, which means blackness. Seba, which means old man. Havilah, which means circle. Sabtan, which means breakthrough. Ra'ama, which means trembling. And Sabtachan, which means surrender. Ra'aman is trembling, Sheba is seven or oath, and Dedan is low. So we have a prophecy regarding the rulers that came from Ham, which the first was Nimrod. So that prophecy is the dark black ones, tribulation extends the lowlands. So where was Nimrod ruling? In the plains, the lowlands of Shinar, which was Babylon, right? So it goes on, conquered the black old men surrounding or circling and breaking through with trembling they surrender so this talks this is prophetically speaking of how babel will submit their authority and surrender to the rule of nimrod and so it says trembling they are brought low by oaths so this speaks of the treaty that the world peoples make with nimrod because he is a great mighty hunter before the lord as the scriptures say he is the first world ruler he's the one who created the tower of babel and he's ruling. So Nimrod uh, conquers the world. He submits his own people to him first, and then the rest of, of uh, Noah's sons. Uh, they make a treaty through trembling and being brought low by oaths, submitting their authority and allegiance to Nimrod. So uh, that's one way to get through uh, genealogy, isn't it? <laughs> Does anybody have any questions? Okay, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer, and then I just have a quick word after that word of prayer. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for all the fascinating and wonderful things that we find and see through your word, that when we kind of put two and two together and research different parts of scripture and bring it into passages that we're studying, things become more clear and make sense when before we just like, what does this mean? So Lord, continue to help us as we study your word. We love you and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.